we're in a series called Knowing God, and um, uh, we don't really do series at City Light. We just study through books of the Bible normally, so it, this is kind of unique, but we're looking going, hey, how do we kind of help our church have a big theology, like a big a deep, rich understanding of who God is. Because if, if there are things you don't know about somebody, it, it impacts the way you can interact with them. And so we're looking at the Father for five weeks, and every one will be anchored into a single text or whatever, but um, we're looking at the Father. Two weeks ago, I preached on God as creator from Genesis 1 and 2. Last week, Skylar preached on God being judge, and Amos, I think, 7. And then today, we're looking at God being chooser. Um, we'll finish out the next two weeks on the Father, then we'll do the seven I am's of Jesus, and then lastly, five weeks on the spirit and who he is. But today is God as chooser. So uh, generally true, I think objectively true for everybody, it feels good to be chosen, right? We all, we all want to be chosen. I was thinking Kristen and I have been together, my wife, for 10 years now. And it's still kind of bizarre to me that she's chosen to be with me for 10 years, you know? Um, and all, she knows all my stuff, all the baggage, all the, you know, unfortunate things. And yet she still chooses me. It's, it's amazing. Um, but as I was thinking about this idea of being chosen, there's a few different ways that you can be chosen, right? Like a motivator or a reason why you're chosen. And that reason dictates how you feel. It feels good to be chosen regardless, but there are a few different ways you can be chosen and that dictates how you feel. The first one is by merit, um, that you can be chosen because you've earned it or because you have something to offer. So I'm not trying to like subtle flex, but I was thinking of, is there any space that I could be like, ah, this makes sense that I maybe got this. Uh, I, I, I've been able to be the graduation speaker for my uh, high school graduation, my college graduation and my seminary graduation. And I don't know why. And again, I'm trying to like a subtle flex or whatever you guys, whatever the, the terminology is. But, um, but when I was in high school, they were like, hey, the valedictorian is like, like not a public speaker, doesn't want to do that. And uh, you're somewhere down the line, but do you want, and I'm like, sure. Like, yeah, I'm like, uh, yeah, I'd love to, you know? And so they have me speak and it was great. It was fine. And then I, you know, I went to Wesleyan and uh, graduation came around and they asked me and I was a communication major. Like there were things to it that made sense um, of, of why. I'm not saying that I was like the most likely candidate or whatever, but when you get chosen for a job, for instance, you're looking at that going, I'm really grateful that they chose me. But there's a sense where like you, you were qualified for the job. It made sense that you would be the person to get that job, right? That's being chosen based on merit. Relationships are that way. It feels good to be chosen, but there's a level where you're going, but like we, I have something to offer in this relationship. The second way you can be chosen or reason um, would be by chance, by random chance. And so I remember doing like a little raffle when I was a kid. My mom and I were in the grocery store. I think it was with Oreos or something. That's all I kind of distinctly remember. But I ended up winning the raffle. Like later on, they mailed us this thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, they chose me. Like I got to win and sent me this Lego set or whatever, mom, you probably know. But, um, but, it, was, uh, but it was amazing to, to be chosen, but it was also random. It was like, it was either me or 800 people and there was nothing about me special. It was just, it was just random. And that's how I got chosen. Maybe you've uh, done a raffle too and got chosen. The third way to be chosen is through obligation. So I don't know about you guys, but I've got some PTSD from PE back in the day uh, as a young kid, uh, always been generally uh, below the average height. And uh, so when we go to do do no, no, dodgeball necessarily, but because I'm kind of, you know, look squirmy, it's hard to hit, you know, but a uh, little, little agility, but, you know, but basketball, when we do basketball in the gym, they go through and, and they're like, okay, and you get the team captains and then they're looking around, they're like, I'll get you, you know, you got your growth spur early, I'll get you, you know, all this stuff. And then it's just me and this other dude, you know, and like, 
And I'm looking at him and, and they pick him and it's me last. And they're like, okay, I'll take you. You know, I'm like, okay. I'm sorry, I wrestled through high school, just not good at basketball. I would be ashamed for you to see my shot, right? But I had, I got chosen onto the team, but it was because they needed to fill that last spot. And I was the last person. So was I chosen? Yes. But it was kind of because of obligation. They just needed to fill that spot. So merit, um, chance, obligation. And what I want to say, and I think that you could fit any type of choosing relationally into one of those three categories. And what I want you to see this morning in Deuteronomy 7 is that God doesn't choose based on any of those things. He chooses entirely different than the way we choose. Um, And we're chosen in a different way, which should elicit then a different response. See, God doesn't choose us based on merit as if we have something to offer and God goes, oh my gosh, you have so much kingdom potential. If I get you and my family, man, we could do some big stuff for the kingdom. No, God doesn't choose us based on chance as if he's got like all the names written out on this piece of paper. And he's like, all right, guys, Trent, it's your lucky day, man. You know, you're all in. No, that's not it either. God doesn't choose us based off obligation as if he needed to save anybody. Like that justice would be, we're all condemned. So he didn't need to save any of us. And it wasn't like, oh man, heaven's getting a little bit thin. Like maybe we should pack the throne. I need some more people. No, like he wasn't obligated to save anybody. He saves entirely different. He chooses entirely different than the way we naturally operate. And so um, he doesn't choose based off merit, chance or obligation. So how does he choose? And who does he choose? And when does he choose? And what does he choose? All those things. So that's what I want to do is unpack this idea of God as chooser through Deuteronomy 7, our verses today. So we'll start out with the question, why doesn't he choose? Or why he didn't choose? The reason why um, he didn't choose. So 6 and 7, if you got Deuteronomy 7 open, we'll read these two verses. Uh, Verse 6 and 7. For you are people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. You're the fewest of all peoples. Okay, so why he didn't choose you. Now, if you're not familiar with the history of uh, the Israelites or God's people, um, God had multiplied them and grown them so rapidly that they were about 2 million people while they were in Egypt. Egypt. They were growing so large and so fast that Egypt that was enslaving them, this powerful nation, was afraid of how fast they were growing that they had to take some measures to do population control over God's people, the Israelites, because they were multiplying so rapidly. So you get this, this whole uh, space, right? Wow, they're, they're growing. We got to kind of inhibit this. And um, And as the story tracks, God frees them from slavery, delivers them out of Egypt, and they end up in the wilderness wandering for 40 years because of their sin. And so this is kind of the space where we're getting them uh, is in Deuteronomy 7. And um, in the wilderness, people had died. In the wilderness, kids were born. So it's safe to say they're probably around that one to two million mark, all the people of Israel at this time. And so it could be easy for them at that number of people to look around and go, wow, we've really, we've really got some numbers here. Like we, we've really grown big. This must've been why God chose us because we'd, we'd have a lot of people and we, we'd have some power and we'd have some sway. Like this must be the reason we outnumber a lot of nations. Um, that's why he chose us. And God's like, nah, that, that ain't it. That like you were the fewest of all people, which is a crazy statement of all people on all the earth. You were the fewest of all people. So just catch this, just because you're big now, don't forget that he chose you when you were small. 
And if we're honest, this subtle lie is really easy to believe. Um, as maybe you've walked with Jesus for a while and he's transformed you and he's transforming you and you haven't really struggled with the same sins you used to and you're getting a little better or whatever else it is. Um, and as you're making an impact, it may be easy to look around and go, wow, this, this is why God chose me. This is, I finally figured out why he chose me. I know why. The money I'm able to invest into his kingdom you know, I can be generous or the people I'm able to share with and make an impact on. And he must have chosen me because he knew we'd be really hospitable and love to have people over to our home. He, he must have chosen me because, um, you know, I'd, I'd eventually learn more about my Bible and I can help other people understand it. And, and, and God's like, no, like that couldn't be farther from the truth. This here, verse seven, is God's um, rem- a call to remember your humble beginnings, to remember the state you were in when God found you. Uh, to look back on how broken you were and needy you were and hopeless you were. Don't forget how he found you. And so this is, we do good not only to remember this for ourselves, um, but also others that we are around, especially Christian leaders that we kind of have elevated and look up to. Um, We can easily forget our favorite Christian leaders uh, were once dead in their sin, addicted to rebellion and wanted nothing to do with God. Current leaders like John Piper or uh, Tim Keller or Ginny Allen or Jackie Hill Perry or uh, Matt Chandler or Jen Wilkin or Francis Chan, past leaders like Augustine and Martin Luther and Corey Ten Boom and uh, C.S. Lewis and Charles Spurgeon. Like, like when God chose those people, they didn't have a well-known name. They didn't have a platform. They didn't have all those things. He didn't choose Tim Keller because he's Tim Keller. Okay, God wants to make it clear he didn't choose any of us because we're awesome or because we got something to offer or because we'd be generous. That's not the reason. Okay, well then why did he choose us then? Well, God explains that in verse eight. Verse eight, he gives an answer to that. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So two reasons he gives in that verse of why he chose you. Number one is because he loves you. Number one is because he loves you. That's what he says, because the Lord loves you. Now, every night before our kids go to bed, we pray three things over them. Uh, Number one, that they would know that Jesus loves them. Number two, that they would know that we love them. And number three, that Gracie would know she's beautiful, that Haddon would know he's a leader, and then Eden would know she's a delight. So those are the three things we're like, man, if there's anything I can convince my kids, those are the three things. And then the last one is kind of more particular to who they are. And so um, I didn't really grasp the gospel until I was 19 years old. Um, And there's a piece of me that hates that, that I went so long believing the lie that there's no way that God could love somebody like me with my brokenness, you know, and my sin and rebellion. And and it took me so long to admit that I couldn't save myself or to acknowledge my mountain of sin and all that stuff, right? And to just, and believe that his grace is actually sufficient. It's a piece of me that hates it. It took me um, that long. Um, And it's taken me the last 11 years to deepen the belief in those things. Wow, I'm just amazed by it. But one of the greatest privileges of my life is seeing my kids internalize the gospel at such young ages. Um, I'm watching their hearts soften to God. I'm watching them pray for people. I'm watching them thank him for the good things in their lives. I'm watching them ask spiritual questions. I mean, I don't think there's any greater joy for a parent than to see their kid walking um, you know, in the truth or exploring that. And if I got to the end of my life and I had spent all this time, all this time preaching to thousands of people from a stage and yet neglected to talk about Jesus loving my kids from the dinner table, 
and from the drives to school and from sitting on my lap or from a bedside, my life would be a regret. And so it's my like undying commitment and joyful pursuit to convince my kids that Jesus loves them as well as you as well, or both. But, um, but primarily, I feel like the, the risk is to preach, you know, to so many, and then not always tell the kids. And so I, by the way, if you're a parent, we've got a parent conference coming up in March 10th and 11th. And we'd love to, we're going to talk about this idea of uh, seeing your primary mission is teaching your kids the gospel, basically. Um, so I'd love to have you guys come to that. But um, I'll, I'll ask Gracie, I'll ask her all the time, hey, who loves you most in the world? My six-year-old. And she points up and she goes, Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, you're dang right. And then, and then I'm like, well, who loves you second though? You know? And she's like, daddy and mommy are tied for a second. I'm like, no, 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 no. Daddy's second, mommy's third, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and she's like, no, you know? Um, but, but then I'll kind of press in a little bit. I'll, I'll say, okay, so God loves you, but why does he love you? You know? Um, and I don't give her any hints, uh, you know, Hey, is it, you know, the cross, you know, like, I'm like, Hey, why does he love you? And, um, and she, and, and, you know, hopefully not, but maybe she would say like, well, because my dad's a pastor, because I go to church every week or because I've been helping mommy or because I've been nice to my brother or because, you know, um, I've been reading my devotional at night or something. And, and so I'll, I'll kind of ask her, and if I just ask you like to point that to you, why, okay, God loves you. Okay. But why? Like, what would you, what reason would you give personally to why God loves you? And so um, I want to incessantly remind my daughter of how much God loves her, but I don't want to miss the why behind it, because that could get confusing. And so the other night when I tell her, you know, hey, who loves you more? Jesus, mommy, daddy. Okay, why does he love you? She, she just goes, he just does. That's what she says to me. Why does God, Jesus love you? He just does. And I thought, what a perfect answer he just does. Like stripped from our logic to try to make sense of this affection from God, he just does. I don't have any greater answer than just this is who he is and it's what he's chosen to do and he just loves us. And then I press in and say, okay, but Gracie, how do you know that though? And she's reading her book, it was at night and she, and she just, she goes to the cross. Like, and I'm like, okay, who are you? Like you're, like, you're preaching the gospel, it's amazing. And it's so true. Like John 3, 16, one of the most well-known verses in the, in the Bible um, says that for God so, so loved the world that he gave his only son. That was the, the evidence, the proof of his love is that he gave his son, but it doesn't say that he was so impressed with the world that he gave his son. As if like, yeah, that's why I love you. You're awesome. Here you go. No, he so loved the world, but there's no explanation to his love. He just does. It's just who he is. And so um, have, do you believe that? Like, have you banked your life on that truth that despite your unlovable nature, that God loves you? Why, why did he choose you? Because that's you. Why does he love you? He just does. How do you know that? Look no further than the cross. That's the first reason that God shows you is because he loves you. And the second reason is because of his oath. So he says, verse eight, it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So what's the oath that he promised to your fathers? Um, it goes all the way back to Genesis 12 and verse 15, when God makes a covenant and an oath and a promise with Abraham. So if you got your Bibles, you want to flip there, Genesis uh, chapter 12 is where this is. This is really, really, really important chapter in the Bible. It's the whole biblical arc. But Genesis 12, one through three is, um, is this first covenant promise oath connection to um, from God to Abraham. Um, and so Genesis 12 verses one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, uh, go from your country and your kindred 
and your father's house, the land that I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors, I'll curse. And in you, this is key, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so that's Genesis 12. He promises to make Abraham a great nation. And despite, if you track through the narrative, Israel's slavery and their infertility and their rebellion and their losses in battle and their dis- all this stuff and famine and all sorts of things, God is faithful to keep the promise to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation. Normally, any type of oath is two-sided, right? Here's my commitment to you. Here's your commitment to me. If you hold up your end of the deal, I'll hold up my end of the deal. But if you read through Genesis 12, you will not find a single aspect that is two-sided. He doesn't say anything like, hey, I'll make you a great nation as long as dot, dot, dot. He just, it's just like, what, what's going on? Like, it's just God promising to do this thing for Abraham and his descendants. And so catch this. Um, God's chosen people are part of an unbreakable covenant that isn't based on you choosing God, but on God choosing you. It's about him keeping his promise, his ability to keep his promise, not our ability to keep our promise to him. That's what Deuteronomy 7 is saying. I'm blessing you because I keep my promises. It's just who I am. And you're getting the benefit of being connected to someone else that I've promised something to because you're a descendant from that original promise I made, tracing the lineage back to Abraham. You get that? So I don't want you to miss the gospel uh, here. People in the line of Abraham are blessed. That's what he's saying. It's a great nation. It's a chosen people. They're chosen. It doesn't matter how far down the family tree you are. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how bad you are. If you're in the line of Abraham, you are chosen. If you're his offspring, you're chosen by God. So with that in mind, now Galatians 3, verse 29 Here's what this says. This New Testament, Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, which is to say, if you've trusted in Jesus, placed your faith in him, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So listen, track with me on this. The bad news about the oath with Abraham in Genesis 12 is that only those in the actual bloodline of Abraham are chosen. That's the chosen family. Essentially, you want to be a part of that family. But the bad news is that we're, we're not in the line of Abraham. Most, you know, we're not Jews like so many, right? And so, but at verse three, he says that Abraham's family will bless all the families on the earth. How does he do that? What's this blessing of all the families, all the different families? Well, if you track way down in the line of Abraham, there's a man named Jesus that comes. And Matthew 1 explains the direct lineage from Abraham down to Jesus. And In this beautiful, big, grand plan of God, Jesus in the family of Abraham comes, lives a perfect life, dies a painful death, and resurrects with with power. And because of him, in the family of Abraham, we get adopted into that family that is chosen. You get what I'm saying? Again, internalizing this, we could only be invited in this family through the bloodline. We can only be a part of this process through that, but that's problematic because we're not a part of the bloodline, but we are because of the blood of Jesus that brings us in. So listen, all the promises of God to Abraham now apply to us if we have faith in Jesus. So why did he choose us? Well, we're all undeserved recipients, but we're part of this oath that he made to Abraham, blessed in the same way, chosen the same way because of faith in Jesus. 
So his love and his oath. Um, next thing I want to answer is like, well, who does he choose then? Um, because if you're looking at Abraham and Sarah and you're looking at us today, who, who does he choose? And, um, and if you look at verse eight and uh, in Deuteronomy seven, he says, um, it, the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So again, I can't tell you how significant Genesis 12 and 15 is to this story and the, and the, the choosing and the blessing. So the first thing, first type of people that God chooses are the unlikely, are the unlikely. So Abraham and Sarah, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And they're like, cool, that sounds awesome. Let's go do it. We're all in. Um, at the time, they don't have any kids, you know, whatever. It's like, hey, we'll see what God does. Well, if a couple chapters pass. And in Genesis 15, they're like, God, I don't know what you're doing, but we literally don't have any kids. We are old. We are infertile. And I don't think this thing's going to happen, especially through us. But Frank and his wife have eight kids, and that would be a good family to choose. They seem like they're going to be numerous, right? No, 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 no. And God, and God goes, okay, Abraham, come here, buddy. Takes him outside, goes, look up at the stars. It's awesome. And he goes, so shall your descendants be. That's Genesis 15. You see all those things? That's what it's gonna be. And so despite their impatience and their struggle to believe, they eventually have a miracle boy, Isaac. And uh, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And our boy Jacob went big and had 12 sons, okay? And, uh, and so they had a great marriage. Uh, it was awesome. And so anyways, um, Jacob and has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's family gathers in Egypt as it progresses. And Genesis 46 says that at the time they went to Egypt, their family, this, this great nation, is 70 people. 70 people. Abraham, I'm gonna, great nation, okay, great. Jacob, or Isaac, okay, great. Jacob and Esau, Jacob, 12 sons, 70 people. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, by the time God freed them from Egypt, they were 2 million people, okay? They have grown rapidly. And since the offsprings of Abraham are followers of Jesus, well, that means that, again, I don't know how many are actual followers of Jesus, but there are 2 billion people around the world that profess faith in Jesus. So you're going, he brought that infertile old couple and then brought them to 70 and then brought them to 2 million. And now there's billions. You get what I'm saying? Like God has been faithful to his promise, but is anyone else surprised that he chose Abraham and Sarah as the ones to start this great family? Is that mind boggling to anybody else? They literally don't have a family. It's just, they, they were infertile. They were wildly unlikely. But throughout scripture, this is what God does. It's one of my favorite themes throughout the Bible is to see God's commitment to use and work through the unlikely. And so if you, a couple weeks ago on our birthday, I got to preach on Moses and Exodus three and four and how he chooses this man to be the spokesperson for God and people, but he has a stutter and he's insecure about it. He's like, I don't know, but God chooses the unlikely. In Judges chapter six, he chooses Gideon and Gideon to beat the innumerable Midianites. And he's like, hey, Gideon's like, I don't know. I'm the youngest in my clan. It's the weakest clan. I don't know if I'm the right guy. No, you're gonna be the guy. And, uh, and as it progresses through in 1 Samuel 16, he chooses David. And David is uh, not even thought of like worthy by his dad. He's like, he's just out tending the sheep. He's the youngest. He's never been in battle. God chooses him to defeat this people that know this giant that no one else can. In Acts 4, 13, Jesus is, uh, it's talking about Jesus' disciples. And he says they're common, uneducated men. Like this is what God does. This is our story. He chooses the unlikely. 
That's what he does over and over and over again. So if you feel unlikely, praise God. You might just be chosen by him uh, to be used in a significant way. The second group of people that he chooses uh, or type of person is the unworthy. So not just the unlikely, but the unworthy. So I've been wondering, why Abraham and Sarah? Is that fair to ask? Like it never speaks highly about Abraham's character. He's a great leader. He's passionate about God. It never says anything about Sarah. She's hospitable or she's engaging or she's nice or whatever. It just says their lineage, if you track before Genesis 12, leading up to them and that God pursues them and and does it. So we just saw that they were unlikely, but I also want to point out that they were unworthy. See, in Joshua 24, he's recounting the story of Israel, God's people. And, and he explains, gives us history and context on Abraham and Sarah. So Genesis, or sorry, Joshua 24, two through three says this. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates and Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. That's key. They served other gods. Then I took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many, and I gave him Isaac. Okay, so this goes back to the reasons why he didn't choose us. There's no merit here. It wasn't like Abraham's this passionate worshiper of God, and God's like, yep, I can use that guy. He's gonna be awesome for my kingdom and this whole thing. No, they were worshiping other gods. And God's just like, I choose you. You're, you're my guy. You're my girl. Like, let's go. And I wonder if through Abraham's life, he ever wondered, wrestled that, why did he choose me? You know, like I, I wasn't doing anything to elicit that. And, and, and yet he, he does it, knowing full well he didn't do anything to elicit the choosing of God. It's just pure grace. But I want you to notice this is a theme in Deuteronomy, and it's the theme of God in general. But the chapters surrounding this, the verses surrounding Deuteronomy 7 are all about his sovereign grace and his choice. So if, you got, if you're in Deuteronomy 7, Page before, Deuteronomy 6. Uh, this is 10 and 11. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 10 and 11. It says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with a great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, and he says in 12, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You have all this stuff that you didn't do anything for. You didn't build. I gave it to you. Okay, then you go, we got Deuteronomy 7, then you go to Deuteronomy 8, next page, 17 and 18. God says, Deuteronomy 8, 17, 18, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Okay, great. What about Deuteronomy 9? It's there too. Look at verse six, Deuteronomy 9, verse six. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness for you are a stubborn people. This is our story, City Light. The down and out. The rebels who just can't get their lives together. The ones who can't seem to get off the struggle bus. I heard a pastor once say that God is a bottom feeder because it's where all of us are. None of us rise to the surface as likely candidates for his choosing. Before him, we're all spiritually dead. No pulse for God, no love for him, and yet he chooses us. Next question is, well, then when did he choose us? So we know why he didn't. We know why he did. We know who he chooses, but when does he choose us? Um, when, you're, when you're chosen matters, right? 
Uh, five years ago, uh, my wife and I wanted to get a puppy. And um, classic, you know, younger, married, you know, we're going to get a puppy. It's going to be great. And so um, sh- we decided we want a mini golden doodle. And uh, so I checked online and we found some golden doodles in truly this little Amish community in Ohio. Okay. And uh, so I called the guy and I'm surprised. I thought we were, I was going to have to send a fax or something like that. And so I'm like, hey, dude, um, we want it. We want a mini, do you have any left? And he goes, we have one left, but nobody wants him. And I was like, okay, why? You know? And he goes, well, he got a crate dropped on him. And so he's got a bad back leg. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I was like, like a, like, is it like a cute limp or like a really gimpy limp that kind of makes you sad when you see it? And he's like, I don't know how to respond to that. I'm like, okay. He's like, you just got to see it. And I'm like, all right. So literally that day it was two or three. I called Chris and I think, but the key is he was half priced. I'm like, that sounds right. You know, I don't care what, if he's got two legs, one leg, I don't know. He'll figure it out. Half price sounds great. So my buddies and I, uh, Andrew Sherable that planted City Light in Fort Collins and then Nate and Ben that planted City Light North, the four of us get together and we drive all the way to Ohio through the night. And, um, and we go to this little Amish community, truly horse and buggy, like it was crazy. And we show up to this, um, to the house and the guy, and we see this little mini golden doodle, and he was just adorable. Let me tell you that, like just this little fur ball, and he was so sweet, and his limp was like it was definitely a cute limp, but like at times you kind of got sad about it, you know. And I'm thinking, like, is there any way that we could fix it? Is this is going to be a forever thing? And he then he knocked down a little more price, and I'm like, look, let's let's go. It's going to be great, and uh, my daughter won't care, you know. He, she'll just love that it's a dog. And so we uh, so we get it, we drive back with him. A month later, uh, by God's grace, the limp went away. And so we're like, thank you. That's awesome. And uh, I want to call him back. Like, did the crate drop on his head? Because he's, he's, uh, he's, he's off. Like the dog is just not, he's so deeply addicted to the ball. And I'm like, I want to look at Jesus the way he looks at that ball. And I think my life will be different. Um, and so, and, and we named him Legend, right? And his middle name is Mephibosheth. If you know the story, he had kind of bad legs in the Old Testament. So anyways, that's Legend Mephibosheth Edwards. Um, no, listen, I didn't want to choose. I didn't want to choose Legend before I knew the, the price discount. I was just like, I need to know. I'm not paying full price for this thing. I want to know the price. I didn't want to choose Legend until I got to see him. Um, you know, what was his limp like? What was, what was he like? All these things I needed to see him first. And, and track with me here. I think it's really easy for us to think that this is how God chooses us. That he, he's kind of waiting to see how our life plays out. Okay, I know they've struggled, but are they going to get back on the right track? Are they going to figure their stuff out? And, and he's watching film. Do I want to draft them? And it's like, no, no. The Bible is explicitly clear. This is not how God chooses you. Remember Abraham and Sarah's story? When did he choose them? Before they did anything good. Before they did anything good. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So doesn't that add to the beauty of God as chooser? God doesn't, he, he chose us before we did anything good, knowing everything we do bad. Um, he didn't, he didn't um, eventually choose you. He didn't wait to choose you. He didn't choose you in pencil just in case you mess up too bad that he can erase your name out of it. He chose to write your name in the book of life in the ink of his son's blood, Jesus. You've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Think about that. Pure grace. And I know when we talk about God being chooser, some people are like, yeah, we love it. You know, some people are like, that's confusing. And I got some questions. I'm going, yes, I do too. And I've got opinions that I could go into all the different things. And theologians spent thousands of years trying to figure out God's choosing and how it all works. And I'm saying that 
If you come to a spot where you can't fully figure out God, my only application is, would it lead you to worship? If you and I can acutely define every aspect of God, we are in a deep problem. There should be things about God that we just go, I don't even know how to explain that. I know that he chooses. I know I didn't do anything to deserve it. And all the things that come with that just go, God, you're just bigger than me. And, and I'll have some opinions and I'll try and study, but ultimately I'll come to heaven and I'm probably gonna get it wrong, you know? But all I know is that you chose me and that's amazing, you know? And that's my hope and that's my joy. And so when did he choose us before the foundation of the world? Last thing I wanna ask, answer the question to is, is what he chose us to. So we know why he didn't, why he did, how, who he chooses, uh, when he chooses. Last one is, well, what does he choose us to? And we didn't really get to teach through uh, verse six. So look back at that, verse six. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So he says, two things God chooses you to. And the first one is to be holy, um, to be holy. So that's what he says, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. So track with me, just because he chooses the unlikely and the unworthy, um, just because he chooses based on his love and his oath, and just because he chooses before the foundation of the world doesn't mean that we lazily sit around as his chosen ones and blend in with the rest of the world. The word holy means to be set apart. The word holy means to be different or to be separate. And so um, the undeniable reality is that his choosing changes us. That's the intention. His choosing changes us. It makes us holy. Now, I recently heard a story of uh, Sia uh, Khaleesi, if you know who that is. He was born in in South Africa in a township in extreme poverty. Uh, His dad wasn't around and his mom died um, when he was young and she was young. So he has no parents, no provision, is trying to live and survive by himself, which he does miraculously. And uh, he's going about his life and he gets chosen. He gets selected uh, through a scholarship when he's a young boy-ish still to be a part of this prestigious private school. And they would train him to become a rugby player. So again, kid out of the townships, goes to think he can never afford someone else pays for him. And he goes, and he, because of his, that choosing, that moment where he got brought in, he becomes one of the best uh, rugby athletes in the, the nation of South Africa. He eventually becomes, goes onto the team, the rugby team, and becomes the first black uh, captain, which if you know South Africa's history, it's a really, really big deal. And he leads them to win the World Cup in 2019. It's amazing. It's amazing. He loves Jesus. It's an awesome story. But he is a product of choosing, of someone going, I'm taking you out of your situation and I'm bringing you into something that'll see you flourish and develop and be who you really uh, are intended to be. And his choosing changed him. It made him who he was or the choosing that happened on him. And so, friends, this is what God intends. Um, that his choosing would change us, that we'd be different, that if we really say that we love Jesus, that we would love like Jesus and look like Jesus and pray like Jesus and talk like Jesus and give like Jesus. Listen, one of the most confusing and damaging things we can do to the outside world is claiming that we're chosen by God and remain unchanged. Oh yeah, totally. Come to church, but never be the church preach with our lips, but never our lives, talk about the generosity of God, yet be stingy, celebrate that God adopted us, but neglect the orphans, sing songs about Jesus leaving heaven to come to us, yet refuse to go to the ends of the earth, to claim that we've got good news while we're simultaneously devoid of joy. 
You want to confuse the world, the lost world? You want to make, you want to damage them? Remain unchanged <laughs> and go, wow, yeah, these, there's really nothing different about you than the rest of the world. He says we're meant to be a people holy to the Lord. And it's, it's his work, by the way, to make us holy, not ours, but we partner with him in that. His choosing changes us. And the last thing, which I think is the craziest statement of the whole passage, is not only that we're called to be his, or to be holy, but we're called to be his. So if you see in verse six, he says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be the people, a people for his treasured possession. That you're his treasured possession. Now, I, I just went through a lot of my old stuff, uh, th- went through some totes, and uh, I spent the whole night on, uh, I think it was Thursday night, getting kind of nostalgic, right? Looking at old pictures and, and old letters and, um, and uh, in old possessions and all this stuff. It was awesome. It was a really, really uh, fun thing to do. And, and I threw some things out, obviously, because you're like, I don't really need this. I don't know why I kept that, right? But then uh, there were so many things that were really valuable. One of them was a letter that I found from 10 years ago that Kristen wrote me when we were dating. And I sent the picture of her. I'm like, remember when we used to be, you know, when you used to love me? You know, like, you used to call me like babe and like sweetie and like, you're my sugar. No, she didn't say it. You know, I'm like, hey, now you're like Austin, change the diaper, you know? No, I'm kidding. No, no she's great. She's, she's amazing. But I'm like, to look back and have a marker from 10 years and go, wow, look how much God's done in us and through us and for us. I mean, it's it was like this, it was just really sweet. I just tucked it away. And I was like, it was just this really special moment to remember my relationship with Kristen and our relationship with God. And, and um, it, that, that was my treasured possession, right? Um, but among the stuff that I threw out, I had a bunch of pens, which I don't know why I kept a bunch of pens. I had the contact lens casing. I was like, there was like six of them. I'm like, why, you know, did I think that I was going to be in shortage of these in 2023, you know? And, uh, and I had uh, charging cords that didn't belong to anything, an old Bluetooth headset that I used to think was awesome, and like, and some wristbands that got thrown away or given to the kids and all this. And, um, and it was an easy choice to throw those things out, right? I don't need them. Like, they don't have any value. And yet, listen... God just said that you are his treasured possession, that unlikely, unworthy people are chosen to be his treasured possession. It'd be like him going through the tote and finding an old instruction manual from a blender from 1992 and going, oh, my treasured possession. What? What, God, are you, that? That's what you're trying to keep right now. That's what you think is, I love it. You're never leaving my side. Take this in. That's the way he thinks about you, that you're his, his treasure possession, that he's crazy about you. And, and don't write it off. Don't go, yeah, but you don't know what I've, you don't know what I've done. You, you don't know what last, no, no, no. You're his treasure possession. That's who he is and that's how he sees you. Take that in for a moment. Uh, but I haven't been holy. That, that's okay, you're still mine. But I haven't been reading much. You're still mine. But, but I, I just have not been good at prayer. You're still mine. Um, the God of the universe chooses you into a deep relationship with him as his treasured position. A couple of years ago, our close friends met a girl in their neighborhood, a young girl. And they had her over for dinner often and, and they, would, they, would have, um, they would talk and play cards and they just built a friendship with her. And eventually she, uh, she got pregnant. 
And again, young girl, and she tried her best through the pregnancy with this little boy to be strong and, and healthy, um, but had a lot of different struggles that were at play. Um, and the dad wasn't involved, but my friends were just like, we love you and we're here for you and we're gonna walk with you and whatever you need or whatever he needs, we're here um, while she's pregnant. Um, and, um, and when he was born, he had drugs in his system. And so Child Protective Services had to come and take him away from his mom. And I can't imagine, I know she tried her best, you know, but just was plagued by some struggles. And I can't imagine how heartbreaking that would be. Um, but she said that she wanted my friends to take her son um, while she reestablished and got healthier. And, or at least, you know, how that went. And so they were like, absolutely. Before he was even born, they knew that that was gonna probably be a reality. And um, being born with drugs in your system come with a lot of effects. And they knew that and they were like, it's worth it. Totally, we're, we're, we're game for it. But eventually, and, and, she, and you know, the mom would come and visit and then she'd be gone for a while and then they wouldn't hear from her and then she'd be back. And eventually, uh, because of her continual struggle, she came, gave up her rights to her son and my friends adopted this little boy. Um, and I'll never forget my whole life, the adoption ceremony at the courthouse. Friends and family are there, we're packed it, you know, packed it out, and the judge goes, asks his new mom, why do you want to adopt him? And she says, before the foundation of the world, God chose us. Not because we're good, but because he's good. And if he did that for us, we want to do that for this little boy. I don't know if I've ever seen a more clear gospel picture in my life. But I want you to hear me. They did not adopt him because he had a lot to offer. I'm not downplaying this little boy. He's amazing, been a great addition. But it wasn't like, you know what? This is gonna really help our family a lot by adopting him. They've, they've sacrificed a lot to have him. So they didn't adopt him because he was gonna add a, a lot. Um, they didn't adopt him by random chance as if they were just really eager to get a son adopted. And they just, first one, let's just get him. And they didn't adopt him based off obligation as if that was the only option and the only choice. My friends chose him out of pure love. I was talking to them last night and they said, we knew he was gonna be our son before he was even born. Our yes was on the table. And I thought, this is it. This is at least some picture in some way of how God chooses us. This is your story and it's my story. Unwanted, unloved, um, you know, all that. And yet God goes, you're mine. I choose you. That's our story. <laughs> we didn't deserve it. We don't earn it. And yet we have it. And that's his grace that he chooses us and loves us. Let's pray.